Yeah, we don't want to do anything to scare your children. That's the last thing we want to do. We don't want to scare anybody. Welcome back to Leftover. I'm Arjun. I'm Nikita. And this week we are going to do something a little bit different. Um, so the first three episodes have obviously been about fairly overtly political topics. This week we are still going to talk about something political, but in maybe a little bit more of an indirect way. Uh, and we're going to talk about rave culture. Uh, that might immediately put some people off, which is understandable. Then that might also include Nikita <laughs> to a certain yes. extent. <laughs> Am I right? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, so apologies for that. I, it's, this was a, a bit of a, um, a pet project and I kind of imposed it. So uh, I do apologize. But hopefully uh, at the end of this episode, uh, even people who don't know that necessarily that much about rave culture or think that they don't care that much about it might come away with something. And uh about maybe also why they should care about it. Yeah, it's there's a lot of relevance here if you care about, particularly during the pandemic, about police overstepping their boundaries or the fact that maybe they're not even stepping overstepping boundaries because that's what they're told to do. And also the way the state communicates and imposes things on communities that they consider undesirable. Yeah. And we're going to talk about a about rave culture in a lot of different angles, you know, as, uh, you know, historically the uh, origins of this particular type of music and, um, you know, the reclamation of public space as a site of political resistance. Uh, and joining us this week, we've got two amazing guests who I'm really, really excited to have on. And I'm actually just going to pass it on to, to the two of them to introduce themselves. It is, uh, I'm, I'm, it's Riley from Trash Future. I'm very excited to be here uh, and talking about one of my favorite subjects, uh, dance music and its intersection with politics. Uh, something I think about all the time and am forever uh, bothering uh, my Cretanous co-hosts about uh, wanting to tell them uh, facts about it, sending them tracks to listen to, and generally pissing them off when they say, this all sounds the same. <laughs> Work on the damn notes. Hi there, uh, I'm Steph. Probably only know me from Twitter as at Steph Got Booted on various other accounts because I keep getting banned for insulting Tories and accusing them of doing really terrible things uh, keep, keep, in the form of fake rooted. newspaper headlines. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I've been clubbing, I'm probably a little bit older than everyone here. I've been clubbing for like well, over 20, 25 years now. Um, and um, I've been into dance music for, for so long. I've even released a few records and stuff and made dance music. So like it's something that that's quite close to my heart. Obviously, I don't get to get out as much now that I have kids and stuff, but I still but I still like dip my toe in and I still like really like the culture. And um, I'm really looking forward to this discussion because it's something that doesn't really get talked about that much. And um there's so many interesting crossovers with politics and stuff that we could that, that we can really um explore. So so that's me. Wicked, yeah, and thanks both of you so much for joining us. Um yeah, really looking forward to this. Um and just to start, I think because I reckon dance music is one of those things that everyone sort of has an origin story of sorts with and uh, you know, where they first got introduced to it and 
where they first sort of fell in love with the culture or maybe didn't fall in love with the culture uh, in the case of Nikita and, and you know, why that might be as well. So who wants to go first on that? So I... <sighs> Let's see. I, I think I, I came to it via the music first, um, largely because... Uh, when I was uh, in living in Toronto, I was uh, friends with sort of lots of people who were like sort of music bloggers, and uh, this was in the sort of hype machine uh, era, effectively, it's sort of the late two thousands. And I really enjoyed. I I, I really did, I had no idea about dance music really when I got to university. I was sort of aware of it as a concept. I didn't really know much. I I wouldn't have been able to tell you what techno was specifically. And it, it was even still a few years until then. And I think what happened was when I was going to university, it was the years that like, that like dubstep was getting big in America and Canada. And much like most times that you reflect on the things that you liked when you were in your late teens, um, I am absolutely beat red with embarrassment that I was thinking, mm, yes, the drop, more of that, please. <laughs> um, I, I, I can't wait for this, you know, old movie line to be put over, you know, sounds of a car crash. And I'm like, yes, awesome. As, as it was famously oftentimes uh, put, uh, Terminators having sex. Indeed. I, I, I enjoyed that kind of thing. And I, I sort of, there was a, a, a scene in Toronto that was sort of, and again, I don't, I don't, I, there were scenes long before this, right? Like there was the kind of scene that you know, a, um, a, a sort of, let's say, I don't know, middle class white kid at a <laughs> relatively at a, at university, uh, could sort of access easily by handing someone ten dollars, uh, without having to like know anyone or be in involved in that culture, and I think that sort of set the tone for what my relationship with dance music scenes would be like for my entire life, which was an extraordinarily enthusiastic tourist. <laughs> um, and what happened was I sort of kept on with that and I think my taste became as is the case with so many things sort of much less shit as I got older and as I sort of learned sort of more of what I liked but I, I my whole story of dance music really is a very much more of a one-on-one -on -one relationship with of me finding things I like and listening to them and then sort of going going to clubs when I can, traveling to go to clubs as often as I can. Um, but it's it's sort of highly opportunistic. And, and then at that point, having pra practically zero personal connection with any kind of scene, but eagerly sort of reading histories of it. I, I see myself sort of almost ashamedly as a kind of a consumer of a product rather than a sort of way of, of being and existing. Uh, that is alternative to sort of what you might find, say, outside the walls of a uh, nightclub. So um, almost like a caveat emptor. My opinions are those of that person, not someone who is, you might say, connected on anything more than an intellectual level and a, a level of sort of real devotion, but again, one-to-one -one devotion to the concept as well. Yeah. What about you, Steph? Um, yeah, I mean, so I've, I've been listening to dance music since I was like 
10, 11. The, this I'm really going to show my age here. The very first tape I bought was called Rave 92, <laughs> right? which had a load of old hardcore stuff on it. Like, do you remember that Sesame Street song that, that, that sampled it? That basically the song that ruined Rave because everyone just started like novelty sampling, like kids' shows and everything, and it all just went to shit. Like, but obviously, I was too young to go clubbing at that stage, but I was still listening to the music. And um, but so obviously you can probably tell from my accent, accent that I'm Irish. So there was a there was a the scene in Ireland really, it it lagged behind the UK a little bit in that like so eighty eight was sort of the the summer love in 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 the UK. So it was we were about a year or two behind in Ireland, but I definitely remember because especially the area that I lived in is actually quite a deprived area. But there was like so there was like huge issues with drugs and stuff like and um there was this moral panic that happened and I think we, we can all remember these sort of headlines and stuff the sun were doing it was happening in Ireland as well like and um, I was aware that something was happening something big you know and there was just like these massive raves going on like thousands of people and like no one knew how to deal with it you know and of course what does the state do it just sort of hammers down cracks down on this stuff sending police in constantly raiding the clubs you know shutting them down clubs that only open for a couple of months and then they'd be kicked out and then there'd be people giving backhanders and all you know so I was aware of all that but I was too young to really get it so basically when I did start going club and that was pretty much when I was when I turned 18, I looked really young when I was a kid, so I could never actually get into clubs before because my, my, they just laugh at me saying, like, you're about 12, like, even though I was like 17. So I could ne- I never get a good fake idea out. But there was this one festival, the very first festival in Ireland, which was, it was in English import, Homelands. It was the first proper legal 25,000 person dance music festival that ever happened in Ireland. And um, went went to that and just was absolutely hooked. I was just such a cliche living for the weekend, like for about the entire like I failed college second year because I was going out like dancing every weekend and just like not not coming in until Wednesday because I was too tired. I hadn't slept, <laughs> <laughs> so I was just like. And again, as Riley says, listen to awful music. The music I started listening to was like just this pop and like banging trance, like you know. But I I actually snapped out of that pretty quickly. I had um. So I've always really liked sort of sort of harder extreme types of music, you know, like industrial, like really hard techno scrans, that kind of stuff, which kind of escalated into like Gabber and Speedcar, like that none of my friends like. So there's like two of us that go out. And, I, have, like, I have some very, I have some very interesting connotations with Gabber music. Yeah, well, I know exactly. Yeah, later, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's it's pretty Dutch, like. Yeah, um, it's very Dutch. So see, I think I, I never, I never really went to those parties because in Ireland they just. Like, I think I've only ever been to, like, the only times you'd ever get that sort of music was at, like, and this is actually, we'll probably speak about this later, was at the free party scene where you would get these more extreme types of music. There was these guys who used, these anarchist guys who used to run these free parties all the time, like, and definitely what they were doing was overtly political, like, but the people who were there, (laughs) it wasn't political for them. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, So, yeah, so I've just been, I said, I've I've always listened to dance music and I I start to make it as well. So that actually kind of understanding the mechanics of how the music works is actually kind of kind of interesting. But it's also a bad thing in one way because you can't listen to music in the same way as when you started. Because I'm analysing it going, oh, God, the highs are a bit high there. I would have chugged that down. (laughs) You know what I mean? So you kind of actually almost ruins your enjoyment of the music a little bit. But it was always a like my interaction with dance music was always in clubs. I was always out with my friends. I was always out listening to to, to music that way. Um, but then I then I kind of got more so absorbed in the music that I kind of sort of that became less of a focus, and I was more interested in actually just like trying to find new stuff. Kind of like what you were saying earlier, there, like you know, just like 
digging deep. You know, like when record shops used to exist, people would call it crating and, you know, you'd go and try yeah. and find some mad music you'd never heard of, like, and then the internet, and they, as I said. So, like, I started in 1999, so... There was no none of this internet stuff or anything like that. You could know Shazam, so if you heard a great song, you may never hear it again and never under, never get it again. But yeah, so that so that's the kind of thing, and it, it's interesting to see how it's changed as well in that kind of way. Like um, like uh, all the music in the world is at your at your fingertips now. So I ne- I never I never have that, and it's it's I kind of I think it's actually better. I hate people who try and reminisce <laughs> about these things. Shit that I couldn't find that tune. I really fucking like it. Can I tell Can I tell you about Spotify's business model? <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> oh no, it's just. It's just <laughs> it's it's you know it it uh, we try on TF we try to not be um luddites just because it's like no it is better that like you can all, all find basically more or less any music you might want with you know notable exceptions obviously um but my god do they have an exploitative business model um what they do is they only pay they basically all of the money they make from from uh streaming so that's like the subs and stuff they divide up proportionally based on who gets how many listens. So, uh, it doesn't matter if, you know, you get a thousand listens because if, I don't know, let's say, uh, Bruce Springsteen or whatever gets, you know, a billion, then it does, then he'll, because there's one person getting so much, everyone else gets proportionally a lot less. So it's basically just a way of redistributing money Uh. upwards in the music industry. (laughs) (laughs) They already have money. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Famously, that's a really good way of of running any economic. No, but it's because of merit. It's because those people deserve it. This is the free market in action. You know, it's because those people are clearly making better music, and therefore they deserve better money uh, as a result of this. (laughs) Um, I think that's just how it works, right? a pro Lars Ulrich podcast. <laughs> oh my right. God. That clip. Steady on. The other day, I don't know if you saw it as well, right? <laughs> of, um, yeah, from Twitch TV of like Metallica oh, playing a gig and Twitch copyright striking their own music and playing some 8-bit folk over it, which is exceptionally funny in case anyone who's listening doesn't know, is that Lars Ulrich, the drummer of Metallica, was very fervently against Napster, which was, yeah, was, was, Napster was, was, was uh, exactly yeah, was, yeah. one of the first, you know, major music piracy peer-to-peer softwares, you know, which kind of led to the streaming economy that we have today basically napster uh, coincided exactly. with me first get getting my first broadband connection so it was beautifully fortuitous that i was able to rinse that <laughs> for as long as it lasted first song i ever downloaded <laughs> off napster in my school was uh, rolling by obviously was it a dot was it a dot exe no, it was not. It was actually not. <laughs> I used to do um, it on dial-up as well. And like, I'd be downloading oh. these like 12, 13 minute progressive house tracks. And like, <laughs> I think and, like 90% through yeah. would break and I'd have yeah. to start all See, over that's again. The thing. Oh, no. at, that, at that age, when that was happening, I was downloading the like four or five episodes of like The Simpsons season 11 that I would just watch <laughs> like over and over again. Because again, I was like, I don't know. At that point, I was I was like in my early teens. I didn't really know what was going on. I was just like whatever Simpsons episode I could find, I would download. Only a third of them were executables. When the internet came along and kind of shocked my music taste into sort of changing was around the hype machine era, which is like blog house. So that's sort of quite distinct from from your sort of 
uh, you might say, tracks produced by standard issue producers. These tend to be bedroom producers working on like Fruity Loops or whatever. Tends to be fewer, almost no real instruments, or if there are real instruments, they'll tend to be sampled from other songs and so on and so on. And this was the era of, yeah, different blog aggregators, Hype Machine, Hipster Runoff, Accelerator, all of these kinds of things. And that's where I sort of began to come to a point where I was like, wait, are you telling me that this is more than... uh, Because the thing is, I think a lot of people, especially outside North America, don't really understand, is that before dance music was... Before they basically invented a kind of dance music that was like, this is the most hyper-aggressive masculine thing you've ever heard, the consensus in Canada and the States was that dance music was gay. And so basically, like, it took... It, it, it took uh, it took that becoming popular to then create the conditions for what was called EDM, uh, which is, again, basically just like relatively bog standard, big arena house, just that like sort of like... It was the worst sort of parts like, of Chance yeah. with the worst parts of Electro yeah. House and the worst yeah, parts of Techno. I was, was going to say, it's like if you took like Balearic Beat, then removed everything that made it soulful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, uh, and then just sort of like, we're like, well, I guess we'll fill the rest of this space by just uh, tur- by turning up this one well, drum machine. To 11. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's like, we're going to take that tone we're going to remove the soul we're not going to let a real instrument near it um and then it's going to you know it's going to fill arenas of um you know frat guys who are just figuring out ecstasy <laughs> um and so that's where i sort of began diverging was i was like i'm really into like sort of blog house basically and then that sort of kept on on going and, and going and going and i sort of th- what happened was over the years i sort of just went more and more across to techno and just really specifically liking your more german styles minimal acid this kind of a thing um and i remember in fact when the shift completed i remember when the shift because the shift had been going for a while when i listened to less and less and less house and more and more and more techno i remember the night that I was like, techno is the only thing now. <laughs> We're abandoning all the rest of that other shit. And this is specific, I think, to people who really, really like techno, is that techno has a way of making people purists. The worst type um, of people in that music. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, everybody. Um, where... There are like Berlin scene people who will not go upstairs at Bergheim. Oh, for God's yeah. sake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. They, they refuse to go so to Panorama Bar. Oh, yeah. Pa- Panorama is Panorama is yeah. mainstream. Oh, yeah, the, Panorama the Bar is... sound system, uh, that's, that's, you could hear a pinprick yeah. on it. It's just... That's where, that's where Andreas Baumacher <laughs> plays. He doesn't play proper techno. I don't believe in going upstairs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Andre- Andreas Baumacher would be killed by the sound system downstairs. That's a piece of shit. <laughs> anyway, um, so what I remember it was the the summer that Fabric was closed. Remember they they closed down Fabric. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. 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 I, so it was 2017, I think. Yeah, that's when the shift was. Com- no, that was I think 2016. It was 2016 because I, I went to yeah. Fabric. Last time I went to Fabric was 2017. Yeah, yeah so I think this would have been. Think, 2016. I think it was the summer of 2016. They had closed Fabric, 
And I, I didn't I didn't go to fabric. I didn't particularly like fabric. Um, that's the weird thing, right? Because if you like, they get a, like if they're they get all the like the huge name techno people. They'll come through. They'll play fabric, and you know they'll play like a crowd of you know eighteen year old Italian teenagers who don't really understand what they're listening to. <laughs> um, and uh, and but but I I still wouldn't go because the vibes in there have been terminally fucked since like I don't know two thousand ten eleven earlier. I I went I went again specifically because I was I the last time I went was I think a couple years ago, and I was like Ben Clock is playing I like Ben Clock it's worth <laughs> it's worth it to go and see and even the, again by techno standards uh, basically a mainstream artist <laughs> um, yeah uh, but I'm like I like Ben Clock I sort of uh, his his music was sort of. Like I said, I've always gotten into everything I'm into dance music wise, the most obvious route, and then sort of gone down a different way. What happened that summer, every single place in London where you could put a big enough sound system to play a techno gig would be playing techno music for as long as possible. Every railway arch, every like disused warehouse, every used warehouse, every studio space, studio spaces, book solid, oval space, nothing but techno. Even these mainstream venues in central London, yeah, like, like I said, oval space or pickle factory, whatever. Oval techno, space techno, has techno, the techno, worst techno. sound system I have heard in my life. Awful. It's because it's Genuinely not a big glass. terrible. It, it's because the, I think their glass wall is poorly fitted because you can hear it vibrate uh which i don't care for but i'm saying even even these uh these like relatively mainstream like places uh, mainstream or just like places that w- wouldn't be playing the stuff i was interested in we're all playing it and so it was uh i remember going with some friends and it was the 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 gig it was um uh, uh ben clock and road had were uh playing a back-to-back like uh like eight hour set it was very fun um and i enjoyed the hell out of that and i think i i'd been kind of going that way for a while and it the and just and listening to and experiencing that really tore it i think that the first techno gig i saw in london was ellen alien played this was and i remember again i remember it was it's it was a very strange little venue it was um on southampton row which is like right near where i was living at the time so like right by russell square and it was just, yeah like a just a, a basement that had been cleared of stuff and they put a bunch of speakers in. It was, it was lovely. Anyway, but th- this is, this is a, a very sort of, I guess, long way of sort of, of explaining that, yeah, this is, it was a, a fandom that was marked by uh, specific moments in time, I suppose. Yeah. Moments in time and place and places around. And I, I, I think that, yeah, like, like for some reason, I don't know why, maybe you all have insights into this, techno le- breeds purism. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's because it attempts to be as sort of um, powerful, and driving, and minimal as possible. So it you you almost you can make a better techno song than the previous one. You can you can drive to sort of just turning these things up more. Uh, not even sort of the volume, but these characteristics. You can you can make them more. You can you can perfect them, and so on and so on. And so your brain almost skips into a groove where it's like, no, I know now. I know what pushes the dopamine button music wise at least um and <laughs> and now it's like what's that it, 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 now i'm just going <laughs> this direction oh i say i i'm curious do you do you think that that makes any kind of sense or do i mean well do you, I, do you I have any idea why techno with, lends itself to purism i mean i'm i'm gonna say off the bat i mean maybe maybe steph knows a little bit more about this but i'm just gonna say off the bat that i've never been the hugest techno head even though i've like you know i've been to i've been out in berlin lots and you know i've been to Berghain. 
I like techno. Uh, I'm not going to say I don't, but um, that was not really my my introduction to electronic music either. But like the German philosophy towards brewing beer, you know, like it's four ingredients and that's it. You know, it's like there's a very sort of stripped down philosophy almost behind it that it's just a few ingredients and then it's just about... And, you know, again, one of, it's one of those things that Steph probably uh, knows this as well. When you produce music yourself, you know, it's, it's about finding that perfect sound. You know, you want to find that one perfect kick. You want to find that one perfect um, I've wasted snare, hours you know, on trying and, to get a kick before just listening to hundreds of them. Literally. <laughs> and, 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 it sounds even and, and, you know, like if, if someone who's not into producing music is in a room where someone's producing music, they will go crazy. Because, yeah, like, like, you know, you it's doing? just literally that same sound over and over and over again. And and once you can hear that, and I think this is also something we'll come back to uh, as well, because I think electronic music, for me more than anything else, completely changed the way that I listen to music. And once you are able to listen to music in a particular way, you can't turn back. You know, you can't unlisten to it. Yep. You yeah, know, yeah. and uh, it it kind of completely changes certain kind of sensibilities in your in your hearing, uh, and um, this is not just in terms of you know genre and you know individual sounds, uh, but also in terms of what medium you're listening to it on. You know, are you listening to it on your laptop speakers? Are you listening to it on good headphones? Are you listening to it at a club or at a festival with a sound system which has powerful enough God bass willing. to make your whole chest rattle? You know at which point it becomes a physical entity, you know, this music. So, um, you know, I think it raises a lot of different kinds of questions. But before I start, you know, going off into, uh, you know, how I uh, got into this kind of stuff, maybe Nikita, do you want to, uh, do you want to tell us a bit about... Um, <laughs> about how I did it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm genuinely interested I think this would be probably the most interesting part of the discussion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No pressure. Oh, so, um, there's there's a bit of background. So my dad was part of the original Summer of Love, and um, I was born around the time of the Criminal Justice Act. Is that what he's called? <laughs> oh well. yeah. And um, but and then he was a bouncer after that. But um, yeah, so I grew up with the music, and I've always liked the music, and that's part of my childhood. But it's not something I ever really like engaged with or interacted with properly as an adult. Like I go clubbing and most of my clubbing experiences are queer clubs. So like things you've been talking about are kind of reminiscent of me going clubbing and like Vauxhall. But for me, it was about going out, taking loads of drugs and getting off with a 50 year old woman instead of like going out and enjoying the music. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's, I've got a lot to say about it. <laughs> Is there anything in particular which you say which sort of didn't draw you to that kind of scene because i mean that's the thing you know it's definitely not for everyone and um you know this has also been one of the sticking points in recent debates as well recent discourse about uh rave culture is those questions of accessibility you know the questions of um you know uh who is this scene actually for and was there i mean can you think of anything that like particularly like put you off it or that like really kind of made you not want to be a part of it? Because I can think of many, I think I definitely. Just, but like, <laughs> I, I think I just got into different music scenes as a teenager and it, it wasn't new to me because I grew up with like Acid House and stuff. So yeah. it wasn't like I was exploring stuff. And like, and I've been listening to the same Oakenfold album like seven times in the last week. So I still <laughs> listen to it. Even though like, okay, I'm, I'm being a basic bitch. I know. <laughs> but, um, it's just, I'm not, I, mean, I guess I'm not, I'm just not, uh, particularly as I kind of came out my like early twenties when I had lots of energy and then slowly got sort of more sluggish and mentally ill and just stopped going clubbing. 
that's it really <laughs> yeah fair enough i mean and and i think um yeah i mean my my own clubbing experience is somewhat mirror that as well i would say uh but yeah like i mean so my mum's a musician and i mean she's gonna listen to this uh but yeah so my my mum's my a singer and i kind of grew up with music um i did classical violin from a young age and you know it was a fairly purist musical upbringing that i had and even the idea of electronic music being music was not really a thing uh you know it was just computer music and you know like anyone can make it what's the real skill there standard you know the comment sections, uh, you know, just like La Rong Generation type of people, you know, like, ah, this is not what, uh, what real music is or whatever, you know, this is kind of my, this was my attitude towards electronic music for the majority of time. And I was actually thinking about this, you know, because in a way, obviously my, my main sort of, in into electronic music was uh through dubstep mainly even though i was like listening to some trip hop and that kind of stuff before and that was a bit more of a sort of gateway it's so like ninja tunes kind of stuff uh so like bonobo cinematic orchestra but i actually remembered because in my sort of late teens before i went to uni in the netherlands psytrance in India, <laughs> Goa. <laughs> and I went to Goa for the first time when I was 16. And um, it was quite an experience because Goa is a place which is unlike anywhere else in India. And, you know, in India in general, okay, I guess in the last sort of 10 years, there's been a bit of a dance music scene in techno and minimal techno is quite popular there um, and so on. But like, like the Psytrance scene in India is actually something quite fascinating. It was, a lot of it was brought by Israelis because like a lot of Israelis, you know, when they uh, finished their, their service, they got so traumatized, they would just go to India and like, just, just take shitloads of drugs there. And uh, one of the main places that they did that was Goa. And, and so that's where this kind of genre of yeah this hippie acid house uh, sorry not acid house this hippie psytrance kind of emerged in the 90s right and yeah it's, it's a very weird culture and that was like in a way my sort of first introduction to dance music and I, I remember going to like an infected mushroom gig <laughs> like when I was 18 oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and you know it was good fun and everything but like this is kind of coming back to what you were saying, Riley. That resonated with me as well, this idea of like being a being a tourist in a way, because I wasn't even in the UK when dubstep was happening. I was in I was in uh, the Netherlands and I was in uni uni with a lot of Germans and they would listen to lots of techno and house uh, in their parties. And uh like I kind of liked it, but I never fully sort of fucked mm -hmm. with it. And I think it was in my second year, so this was in 2009. We were at a house party, like a sort of after party after a gig. And someone just like plugged in their MP3 player or their, their whatever and put on Fabric Live 37, <laughs> the track Africa VIP by The Others. And the first time that dropped, it genuinely just changed my life. The first time that dropped, I was like, what is this? This is something completely different. This is something unlike anything I've heard before. I was a massive metalhead during my teenage years. And... In a way, dubstep. So was I. There you go. There you go. And I think that yeah. I think that dubstep uh, activates a lot of the similar kind of things as metal as well. You know, because it is bass heavy, and there's a sort of chugging, sort of riff type of uh, feeling to, to dubstep. Now, again, I think that dubstep is one of those things that it has very different connotations to different people. Uh, the dubstep that you know Riley was talking about earlier uh, about the dubstep which really crossed over and blew up in in North America. 
the Skrillex type of dubstep, let's mm-hmm. just say. Um, oh, can I quickly interject about Skrillex? I really like a lot of Canadian artists. I think my favorite one uh, when I was in university was called Zed's Dead. Oh, Zed's yeah. Dead, of course. Yeah, Zed's Dead. And there was Excision yeah. as well, who I think was also Canadian. Uh, and um, God, I haven't thought about yeah, there, there were I haven't th- thought about those guys in like a decade. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> <laughs> the only reason I know who Skrillex is is... Because in the mid-2000s, when I was 13 and into my um, emo and screamo music, he was an emo musician in a band called From First to Last. Yeah, exactly. He's the singer from First to Last. So he went went from doing screamo into Mm -hmm. dubstep. And so when I think of Sadie Moore or Skrillex, I think of getting catfished by guys when I was 13 of people using his picture. (laughs) (laughs) But, but yeah, there's just Jesus. there's a weird kind of link there, isn't there, between like the thing. I mean, he's never metal. But. No, but but it's not that weird of a cross when you think about it, you know. And then especially the type of dubstep which which he kind of popularized. The thing is, he didn't even popularize that. That stuff was already happening in the UK before, and and I think a lot of people in the UK love to blame it on Skrillex because he's not from the UK and it becomes very easy to blame it on someone like him you know whereas stuff like Circus Records Dr. P Sweet Shop you know uh, and even when you think about it like the original the, some of the early Koki tracks like that mm-hmm. really like Spongebob by Koki you know like really sort of set the stage for what a lot of this kind of music ends up becoming later there's recently been a documentary on YouTube by a guy called Timber on Toast if you guys haven't seen it I would recommend that you watch it it's really good it's called All, All My Homies Hate Skrillex and um it's a history of pre-2010 dubstep. And he comes up with a couple of different theories as to why this really mid-range focused dubstep really kind of became the future of this kind of music in the first place. One of them is kind of coming back to what we were saying earlier about how we listen to music. You know, one of the reasons why dubstep is, I think, the best example of this is because dubstep in its truest sense is all about sub-bass. It's about 20 hertz mm-hmm. bass. You know, it's about... Music which is supposed to be played on these massive rigs, which becomes this, like I said, you know, physical entity. Listening to, you know, early Mala tracks or early Lofa tracks or early, you know, like Pevelis tracks and things like that on your laptop speakers, you won't hear Mm -hmm. anything. You know, it, it, it won't even sound like anything. Whereas even something like drum and bass, you know, there is still the actual the drums going on and with something like house or techno you know there's there's more percussive elements there's more of a beat which you can actually follow along to whereas with this a lot of times you know if you didn't hear it on a proper system a lot of people wouldn't even know what the hell's going on whereas you know you listen to the the skrillex type of stuff which is a lot more mid-range focus you can actually listen to it on your radio you know you can listen to it to to to, to it in your car so there's obviously that that accessibility side of things Mm -hmm. Um, it's hard as a producer as well to tame those sort of low bass frequencies because if you mess it up yeah it it will distort on the speakers it takes real craft to get those sub bass sounds out of it basically without just ruining the rest of your track so like there's a there's a real element of skill in what those early tracks were doing whereas for the sort of the sort of more mid-rangey stuff you can just like throw a lot of lfos on your yeah yeah. on your synth and just like go wild with it and like you'll get something (laughs) out of there but you don't need to make as much like you don't have to do as much work with the eqs and stuff to make sure that every element in the track doesn't clash with itself and it doesn't basically overwhelm your speakers yeah and and that early dubstep it's all about that space you know each frequency has a certain space to breathe 
you know, when you listen to that music. Uh, and I think this is something also similar to what you were saying about techno, uh, Riley. I think it's it's that sort of stripped down aesthetic of this music, which also lends itself to purism mm-hmm. as well. But uh, something else, which Mala, you know, who's one and a half of Digital Mystics, something that he has brought up uh, in, a, in an earlier interview is the impact of the smoking ban in 2007. Because before that, you know, you would go to a rave and you would like park yourself in one spot and you would just be there for the whole night. And the DJ would take you on a journey, you know, would take you on a trip. And dubstep is the kind of music, 140 BPM. You can play so many different kinds of music. You know, you can play something that sounds like two-step garage. You know, you can st- play something that sounds really grimy and uh, sort of with a lot of wobbles. You can play stuff which sounds like dub, reggae even. You know, you can uh, play stuff which sounds like slow drum and bass. You know, and you can play all of this stuff at 140 BPM. You can mix it all together and make it sound really good. And... um the whole purpose of a DJ set is kind of to go on this journey, right? And, you know, when there was a smoking ban and people weren't able to just park themselves in one spot anymore and they had to go out, you know, DJs had to had to alter their sets. And they would see increasingly, you know, that the, that the biggest reactions they would get would be from those big wobble tracks, you know, would be from those big tear-out tracks, mm-hmm. you know? And... Whereas previously, you would have maybe one of those big sort of noisy tear-out tracks or, you know, every half an hour or something, one every like five or six or seven tunes or something. Now you'd have a whole mm. set of this kind yeah. of stuff. And then this ends up becoming... And 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 then again, you know, like what, what Riley was saying earlier about like the, this idea of, you know, it being this kind of symbol of masculinity mm. almost, you know, um, it became like this arms race of, uh, you know, who can make the dirtiest drops. You know, you'd have these comment sections on YouTube with just the most absurd stuff, like this drop is dirty, then fingering my sister and finding my grandfather's wedding ring up there. I, I sort of thinking a little bit about the politics of this as well, like, you know, d- dance music might have radical origins, but you certainly don't need to be much of a radical to enjoy it. No. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, in fact, you might say uh, all media, regardless of its, mag- of its uh, radical origins, uh, can be enjoyed by anyone who consumes it because they just project what they like onto it. But like, even Absolutely. if you go back to like 88, that utopianism didn't last very long. By the end, by the mid, by like 91, 92. Are you saying that a utopianism based entirely on partying <laughs> didn't last? No, it's. I'm it's gonna tell everyone, everyone in the, the Capitol Hill, Hill autonomous zone about this. <laughs> and we're gonna have words. But yeah, like, but yeah, like um, all those guys were like, yeah. all those guys ended up being basically just like massive arch Thatcherite capitalists. They were. Like making so much money, Paul Stains, like, uh, Paul Guido Stains. guy was a fucking Paul Stains, Guido producer, exactly, yeah. or like a, yeah. um, a one of those guys, one of those promoters, you know. And like, it didn't, it really didn't take long for that stuff to become so heavily monetized. I remember Aaron, we were talking to DMs about that shut up and dance track from 1990 called Twenty yeah, Pounds yeah. to Get In. And Arian made this great clip. He's like, oh, I wouldn't pay 20 quid to go to a club now, never mind in 1990, which was like a serious wedge of money back then. Like that was, that was, that was basically a pill back then, you know, which were super expensive as well, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's very easy to co-op this stuff, especially when it's so hedonistic to begin with. Well, yeah, because anyone, it's, it's, it's very hedonistic. It has a lot of cultural cachet. And again, a lot of that, a lot of the hedonism comes from the radical roots of the desire to escape and find some community other than that of the, you know, the, 
factory or whatever. Like, it's all there in the history, or at least the way that dance music tells its own history that's very much sort of front and centered. But, you know, as, as these things develop cachet, I mean, you, know, you, you cannot have something exist, especially you cannot have something that exists and reproduces itself in a, a capitalist market economy without serving the ends of some of either it or actively working against it by people who are consistently forcing it to work against it and investing a great deal of their own personal resources in so doing, right? Like, you, there is the, the idea, ah, oh, dance music got co-opted. It's like being, yeah, the water became wet. Any cultural thing that exists must necessarily be co-opted because that's how things get reproduced. Stuff that doesn't get co-opted doesn't get reproduced. And that, that kind of brings us on um, to something we wanted to d- discuss. Do we think rave culture is anti-capitalist? There are a lot of people who conflate anti-capitalist with serious. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it's, I don't know, it's about as anti-capitalist as the movie Get Out. And it's not because it's not serious. It's just because, you know, it's a business. It's as anti-capitalist as any business. And the thing is, right, like, I don't know, fucking Trash Future is a business. It's a worker co-op, but it's still sort of a business. Sure. You know, at this say, and, you know, I mean, maybe you could say that um, our message is a little bit more uh, explicit <laughs> than that of a dance music track. But, you know, nevertheless, right, like, these things all, always exist in tension. I mean, you might even say they exist dialectically, where... You know, if you want to keep doing this thing that you're doing, it must find a way to have itself be reproduced. Verso Books, it's a business. They need to have employees. They need to sell books. They need to have commercial relationships. They need to you know, do all these kinds of things. It's a business that where the ideological content of it might be sort of overtly anti-capitalist. But for me, whether or not a cultural product that reproduces itself in this way can be anti-capitalist is not so much a question of whether, it's a question of how much. It's a question of, of how much and why. What's your metric for something being anti-capitalist? You know, I mean, our early, a lot of early raves, especially like um, with a sort of techno, specifically American techno's roots, specifically a, a vision of like a sort of more socialist, Afro-futurist vision of things to come. It, it, was, it was more overtly political than, I don't know, a Klanglos track or something. <laughs> You know, which is just being like, what would Halloween be like if it was a song? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to try to make it the kind of song that a a cool skeleton would make. (laughs) You know, I mean, and and so again, it goes to this question of if you ask, you know, Underground Resistance or the Belleville 3 or whatever, how anti-capitalist is your music? They would probably have a good answer for you. If you ask Nina Kravis or you know Marcel Detman how anti-capitalist is your music, they would have an entirely different answer for you, and all of them would be correct. And um, in my personal experience from this, so getting into dubstep, one of the main ways I sort of got into it was like just listening to, you know, once again, I wasn't in part of any scene, I wasn't like going to any clubs or anything like that. I was just listening to shitty YouTube rips, and I was going on dubstep forum which is a place which was actually quite central to the start of dubstep as well, because dubstep was like also the first real uh, genre to come about in, in the age of the internet. Uh, it was where a lot of producers would post their tracks for the first time, and there was actual discussion there. And so getting into it purely in this kind of online way, very soon after that, you know, I decided, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start throwing nights myself, because this kind of music that I'm really into, kind of deep dubstep, or dubstep in general, is not really a thing in Maastricht in the Netherlands where I was where I was staying at the time. 
And I want to bring this sound here, and the, the only way I'm going to do that is by, you know, hosting nights myself. And I was involved in the squat scene out there. And um, at the beginning, I wasn't squatting myself. I was, uh, you know, quite involved with this uh, uh, cultural center, which was like the main big squat in Maastricht, which is in this old grain silo. And that's where we did our first party. And over time, I, I was throwing nights in nightclubs as well as in squats. And there were two very different types of nights. The, the nights and nightclubs, you know, there's all the permissions involved, the security, licenses, you have to pay them for, you know, drinks and you have to come up with some sort of arrangement for, you know, what split, you know, you get at the bar or whatever. Uh, you have to book artists, you have to arrange all the logistics, you have to, uh, you know, get their agents, you have to book hotels, all of this kind of stuff, right? And, and it's, and it all goes through these very formal channels. And, um, and that's fine, you know, and, and to obviously do something at a certain scale, part of that is always going to be essential, I suppose. Um, but, you know, also throwing the actual squat parties uh, was a completely different experience. And it was, you know, it was just a lot better. I mean, um, there was uh, none of these restrictions. And, uh, you know, we had this you know, garden where you could fit about 200 people and you had these 10 meter high walls and we had access to this ridiculous sound system which got delivered and picked up for like 150 euros a night. Uh, it was like just, just the most ridiculous setup that we had. And there was real magic to it, you know? And, and again, I, like without trying to rationalize it too much. And I think one of the reasons why I think this lifestyle has always drawn me is because of this quite intangible thing to it. I mean, there is, there is just a very emotional response to clubbing, you know, which is why also for me, there is nothing worse than a bad nightclub. I, I, if I go into a <laughs> nightclub and I hate the music, no, I love I, a bad I cannot, <laughs> I <great>. can't <laughs> deal with it. Like I, I just, I have to just leave, you know, I mean, <laughs> So if I could, if I could just argue against myself then for a moment, I mean, one of the things. That, <laughs> okay, Brandon O'Neill. That, that's right. I'm being, I've, I've been silenced. Uh, I have been silenced by the me from moments ago who was <laughs> telling me ago. what I used to think and not letting me to... now tell me what I used to think moments ago. This is a crime against me and all future Brendan O'Neill's. <laughs> And I, as future Brendan O'Neill, denounce <laughs> the Brendan O'Neill of just moments ago who is trying to destroy the heritage of past Brendan O'Neills by himself claiming that he stands as the exclusive liminal space operator of who gets determined what is the legitimate Brendan O'Neill. I imagine that's what goes on in his head all the time. Um, I think this is... Think oh my God, Your yeah. forehead no longer You don't want to go screen. there because you'll end up like no, going so down this is dialectic. Home. What I... I will argue against myself for a moment as me, not as Brendan O'Neill, the smartest man in the country. Um, or any country, indeed. Damn, what if Brendan O'Neill was behind the Tesla? So. <laughs> what if Brendan O'Neill um, was a country? I wish he was. <laughs> One of the whole points, especially of like this sort of, uh, of, the, of the productive, you might say the relations of production now, is to monetize emotional states as well, as, as monetizing sort of, you might say, productive activity with one's hands. And I think the idea of being in a place where your emotional state is very, very raw, uh, very, very elated, but basically not monetized and barely connected and, and not unconnected to monetization in as much as generally speaking, you will have paid to be at a place that pays to reproduce itself and that um, again, as has employees and that those employees are being exploited, blah, blah, blah. Leave that to the side for now. But that, that essentially, it is a way of distancing yourself from alienation. Yeah. 
It is a way of interacting with other people that is far less alienated than the employee-employer relationship, than the customer-employee uh, relationship, or indeed than most of the um, ways that relationships with others are tending to be commodified into professional networks, into um, you know people you people you know who you can ask favors from, and that you must always be optimizing, optimizing, optimizing. It is specifically not optimizing. Yeah. It is specifically life live for now. Um, uh, especially now. Um, <laughs> and if you wanted to make the argument that it is anti-capitalist, at least in affect, it resists alienation. Exactly. And uh, I think that there's a double side to that. I think that it also contributes to the perpetuation of the daily drudgery, you know, the, the whole living for the weekend and the idea that, like, you know, you've got your five-day week and then over the weekend you just get yourself as blasted as possible and then you know like that kind of gives you some sort of reason or some sort of uh, motivation to you know do your daily grind but at the same time you know uh without looking at it entirely cynically like that i think that yeah there's a reason why i think that at least you know um those of us who are into this kind of lifestyle one of the main draws to it is exactly that uh resisting of alienation you know and is the the creation of this space which is uh, very non-hierarchical and, you know, which is very much, uh, you know, not predicated upon uh, transactions, you know, where, where you're not necessarily expecting something in return. Yeah, there, there, there's there's a, a completely different set of rules of interaction, you know, in, in a space like that than, than you have in your everyday life. And I think that that's something that a lot of people aspire to. And that's something that is, I think, a big draw for a lot of people as well. Um, it's very ephemeral as well, though, which is why it doesn't tend to have lasting effects. Exactly. So like it's over in eight hours or whatever. And then you're like, oh, shit, where's the next party? Where, I've run out of stuff. I need to, where can I find that? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> you come crashing down pretty quickly. <laughs> There's this uh, really old talk by Joe Muggs, you know, who talk about nominative determinism uh, turned out to be a complete, uh, complete <laughs> mug and a melt. Uh, but um, he they did actually have a few. I don't good, think I know who that is. Uh, yeah, music journalist from the 90s, you know, like all okay. the other music journalists from the 90s who turned out to be complete. I was, I was really, really worried for a moment that there was like a, a hack in the UK that I should know about really as part of my job <laughs> that I didn't. <laughs> I mean, thank goodness. <laughs> if you were like, yeah, what are you talking about? He's the Observer's like parliamentary affairs editor. I've been like, ah, shit. Fuck. <laughs> yeah, but Joe Muggs, he, has, the, he has this talk. And he, he I mean, he's, he's, you know, he's, he's written for all the sort of big music publications back in the day. But like, um, he had this talk where he's talking about, and, and the talk is titled, uh, um, DJ Culture is Disgusting. And, uh, but, okay. but he's talking about it from this place of love. Bold. And he's talking about, and I mean, a lot of the sort of same arguments of the co-option of uh, of nightlife and of rave culture and so on as well. But he's talking about the fact that the artwork itself is not individual tracks. You know, it's not even the DJ set. It's the whole night. You know, it's it's the uh, spending time with people beforehand. You know, it's the pre-drinks. It's the taking drugs. It's the journey to the club. It's the random conversations you have with strangers in the smoking area or whatever. Um, it's the, you know, the after party. It's watching the sunrise. I mean, it's the whole package it's those complete like you know appointed discussions about how you're going to save the world and how this is real love man and this is this is this is real you know and uh you know that you completely forget about um 12 hours later 
And that is something that is, yeah, like you said, completely ephemeral. And I think that that's also something that that really lends itself to nostalgia. Uh, and, and I think it's one of, the, one of the main reasons as well why this discussion has been coming up recently in the time of lockdown. I think a lot of people have been missing that for you know for, for for obvious reasons as well and i think that 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 question of that gentrification uh which also then limits the access to these spaces as well not just materially but also I mean, in many other ways as well and um a, a lot of people would say that you know nightlife hasn't really been the same since 1994 you know since the criminal justice act which very infamously put out a law against a succession of repetitive beats, uh, you know, which... Causing one... one I can't well, remember what Stefan well, yeah. this was. Yeah. But yes, to make <laughs> yeah. a, a song that was... Uh, specifically, according to the legislation, just not repetitive exactly. enough to be allowed. I think 65 bars of not, not repeated beats. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was already in the 90s that you saw these kind of mega clubs uh, popping up. This, this you know, really uh, opulent nightlife, which, you know, really kind of peaked with the garage era in the late 90s and the early 2000s. And the, the real sort of opulence, you know, when you look at, you know, like MJ Cole and... Uh, uh, you know, luck and neat and like that kind of stuff. I mean, it's 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 a very, it's very sort of sort of white shirt champagne music, you know, and um, mm-hmm. like it's not really gonna be ever really my cup of tea. And uh, you can kind of understand why as well. A lot of people are you saying to... you're not bound for the reload? <laughs> <laughs> well, I am, but in 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 different ways. Uh, I, I love the drums. But, uh, I used to love the drums uh, because they had shuffle on them. But I could never get into the really oh, yeah. sort of. There was a lot of there was a lot of real like vocally led stuff that I never really that I never really liked. But there was a I sweet like chocolate, chocolate, you know. Yeah, like, that never. Uh, went, but there was some really dodger, interesting you know, exactly, production like... techniques and stuff that came out of that music. That that in itself, because we talk, we talk about nostalgia. The way dance music recycles itself so much, like yeah. like yeah. tracks that are like even only five years old, they get resampled, completely transmuted into different sounds, different things, you know. So like. Dance music almost has this built-in nostalgia machine already, which yeah. kind of makes it really a. It means that you can sell old stuff to new people <laughs> pretty handily, <laughs> but then you can also monetize the people who remember ten years ago when they were young and that track was great. Do you know what I mean? Like the way that it's kind of built into it as well is just you know electronic music is built off sampling, and by sampling you're already you know taking old sounds and you're taking other you know you're repurposing sounds and uh so that in itself is already this kind of there's a diy element to it and yeah there's always this ghost of something else that is present in whatever music uh you know whatever whatever electronic mark music fisher you're. yeah well that's <laughs> 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 well, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, we, I mean, we couldn't and, get this discussion um, without that getting mentioned at least once no well that's the thing and and i was obviously gonna come up at some point but because it's one of those things that that keeps on coming up and i think that it's one of those terms that there's a bit of confusion around maybe i, I don't know riley maybe you're the most well equipped to, to to maybe give a brief rundown of what what what, what is ontology to um okay so uh i feel like i've always been asked to do this <laughs> okay so ontology is is a concept that talked about in in derrida in his um book the ghost of marx and it is a portmanteau of haunting and ontology and the way that it's sort of commonly understood is and especially this is the way that um that uh, fisher uses it is when you're surrounded by the ghosts of future of paths not taken 
So one one just example, a worked example here, would be uh, Britain used to have a large and pleasant network of nationalized pubs. They weren't all owned by Green King. They were, in fact, very nice. They were very inexpensive. They were clean and well-maintained. They were very large and all this. And uh, dotted around the country, you can still see sort of remnants of um of 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 the of nationalized pubs of a of a publicly owned public house that was not just you know a balance sheet item and you might say like oh we we could have gone this way these things we started doing this there were a couple of these up north and then we went another way and you still have these sort of physical reminders of that which of, of that which could have been um and he talks about it in terms of, of of music as well, sort of in terms of the sort of the the the, cr the crackle of um, uh, uh, uh of, of ghostly sounds in um, you know even even like um currently existing sort of overproduced, uh sort of highly sort of more commercialized music these the ghosts of these of, of these uh, of these sounds that are sort of still lurking there in the background, it is uh I think it's supposed to evoke a feeling of melancholy. Yeah, and um. Yeah, I think this this question of you know futures not futures lost basically you know that that we never actually reached um, you know I think this comes through as well in music, especially from that time you know the like the the time when I was getting into uh, electronic music and and obviously Burial's music is one of the first that gets mentioned with this. Uh, there was a very famous interview with Burial and Mark Fisher as well uh, for Wired magazine, and uh, that music in itself somehow conveys this feeling of yeah of melancholy, but also of um, here we go. I I have the quote here. Uh, when cultural innovation has stalled and even gone backwards, one function of hauntology is to keep insisting that there are futures beyond postmodernity's terminal time. When the present has given up on the future, we must listen for relics of the future in the unactivated potentials of the past. Yeah, yeah. Because I think that that can elicit quite different responses. And I think that on the one hand, it can be quite, um, you know, signaling of doom and of collapse. And, you know, the, the fact that we've kind of reached stagnation and this is this is the end and, you know, we're not going to create anything new anymore. Um, but I think there's also just the idea of these unfulfilled potentials and, and the idea that, that you could, you know, still affect the future that is to come. Well, an, you know, an unfulfilled potential was a potential. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a potential that, that, mean, that it could have been different, it could still. Yeah, exactly. You know, so the, 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 any step towards that better world that you feel is impossible was taken at some point in the past. It just didn't step any further. But the the paths that way are not impossible. They're not even not paths. They are paths. They're there to be trodden, so to speak. Yeah. And one of the really funny ways that I would say that this has presented itself recently was this home office video, um, <laughs> which was put out on social media, uh, which was an anti-raving. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, a, it was an anti-raving <laughs> It was notable PSA. because it was good. Yeah, I mean, it was it was it, it made you want to party. <laughs> they got this really <laughs> shitty they had a like, desired effect. And and what was what's really funny about it is uh, obviously for, for people listening who don't know is yeah they were using this kind of really loud drum and bass sample in in, in this video, but it was made in the format of those old anti piracy ads, which said you know you wouldn't steal a car, uh, so you wouldn't steal a movie, and I mean it's one of the most. Even now, like 20 years later, it's still one of the most memed 
commercials of like you wouldn't download a car yeah, that was yeah a, you wouldn't mm. download a car exactly how would i even do that <laughs> and, <laughs> you, you you wouldn't download a rave you know and with uh, a 3d yeah. printer idiot <laughs> god but the thing that, yeah, that, that commercial wasn't stupid it was only future-proofed in ways it did not expect exactly but even that that video itself all right you only ever used to see those ads if you actually did the right thing and bought the DVD. If you pirated it, you <laughs> yeah. didn't see them. So you got punished well, for doing you, the correct behaviour. So like, yeah. because cool people <laughs> on its own terms. Cool people who rave. Exactly. And everyone cool ignored that rave, piracy following thing the whole anyway. Exactly. So it's just such, it just doesn't work. It's so bad. <laughs> but also brilliant. <laughs> You know, and, and there's there's been this industry, you know, around nostalgia, you know, whether it's sepia filters on Instagram or, you know, it's reboots of 80s movies, you know, or... Uh, or reboots you, of early 2000s movies. Or, or reboots of early 2000s movies or at this point. Every single thing uh, that Disney Plus is doing right now. Something that yeah, we've done like 10 years ago. Yeah, like live action versions of films to keep the the, con- the copyright thing going. You know, like live action versions oh, yeah, of yeah, yeah, exactly. all that nonsense. Oh, oh. The renaissance cartu- of renaissance or- Disney. Yeah. Or cartoon versions of uh, live action films like Star Trek Below Decks. You know, we can't really talk about like rave music and dance music and, and you know, musical performance as a site of political resistance, especially in the UK, without talking about carnival. And um, there's sort of two different routes of carnival. Carnival originally in Trinidad, you know, being started as, you know, after the slaves got emancipation in the uh, 1830s, they were doing this carnival basically as a, as an alternative thing to what the ruling classes were doing. They were doing this uh, pre-Lent masquerade and, um, you know, the, the slaves did their own thing and it was called Cambulay. And over, you know, the 19th century and even the earlier, early, early 20th century, I mean, it was still a British colony, obviously, so the British uh, continuously cracked down on this carnival. And, uh, you know, at first they said that the skin drums, you know, they couldn't use them anymore. Then, uh, you know, they, they said, okay, we're going to try to use these bamboo sticks. And they hollowed out these bamboo sticks and made percussion instruments out of these bamboo sticks. And they banned those bamboo sticks. And, uh, you know, by the time it was the Second World War, the carnival had been stopped entirely. But the US Navy had been using Trinidad as a port during the Second World War. And when they left, there were a lot of oil barrels lying around in Trinidad. And so these musicians cut these oil barrels and made little dents in them and invented the steel pan. And the VE Day celebration in 1945, the procession, like people heard uh, one of the first iterations of the steel pan. And, And so this instrument itself you know, is born out of resistance, is born out of, you know, resisting uh, oppression. And when the Windrush generation first comes to the UK in the late 40s, 50s, a lot of them settle in uh, North Kensington. There's a lot of resistance from uh, the residents of North Kensington. You've got the Teddy Boys, you know, who are saying, you know, these are foreigners, they don't fit in, uh, you know, we don't want black people living here basically. Right. In 1958, there's major riots in, in, in Notting Hill. In 1959, we have the Caribbean Carnival, uh, the first Caribbean Carnival, which is held in uh, the St. Pancras Town Hall. And it's held by a woman called Claudia Jones. And I think that, you know, this story of the race riots in 1958 leading to Carnival as we know it today is 
you know, I think fairly well known. But I don't know how many people, because this is something that I basically found out while researching this episode, is about Claudia Jones and, and who this woman was, because she is quite a remarkable person. She was born in Trinidad in 1915. She's cool as fuck. Just incredible. She was born in Trinidad in 1915. Moved to Harlem in New York in, uh, you know, when she, when she was a kid. Got involved with the Communist Party. Her mother died when she was very young. And that sort of radicalized her in a way because her mother was working in a factory. She got jailed in 1955, you know, under the McCarthyite laws. And then she got deported. And she got granted residence in the UK because Trinidad was still a British colony at the time. And she wasn't received particularly well by the Communist Party in Britain either, because Britain's, you know, the British communists have never been particularly good on race and, uh, and, uh, and, you know, post-colonial theory, let's just say. Um, and so she dedicated her life to lifting up the black community. And, uh, in the, the first Caribbean carnival in 1959, she explicitly said that its purpose was to get the taste of, uh, of 1958 out of our mouths. And it became an annual thing until she died in 1964. Um, there was a year's gap in 1965, and then 1966 is where we can basically trace the origins of this particular carnival back to. And in that 1966 carnival, Russell Henderson's Steel Pan Band came to carnival, and they set off the procession, and that ended up leading to the carnival that we know today. And a couple of things about um, about Claudia Jones. I mean, she she died in 1964, and uh, she, she was in an unmarked grave for many years. First of all, guess where that grave is? And, uh, uh, any any Ivory, guesses? Any takers? Oh, Highgate. Oh, Highgate. Highgate. Sorry, Highgate. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. I'm not English. <laughs> the, the plot to the left of Karl Marx. Oh, oh that's oh, amazing. Yes. yes. <laughs> and secondly, the year in which they actually got the funding to 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 get her a a, a headstone. Hmm. 1984, sorry. Oh. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> you should have told me I was supposed to stay as uh, Brendan O'Neill. <laughs> but I think, yeah, this just the fact that Carnival itself was started by this, like, really dedicated communist activist, you know, is, is one of those things that's kind of written out of its history in a way, right? And, no one uh, ever talks about that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What are the, thi- what are the things that reproduce... Uh, that, re- that reproduce carnival and that carnival reproduces uh, policing, uh, sauces, uh, the, the the sale you know sale of of goods, the sale of bathroom time, <laughs> uh, and, and and I think that one of the if you wanted to synthesize sort of these two, well, are these things anti capitalist or not? It's like well, they can be if you make the effort. If you don't make the effort, then they become a way to sell sauce. But if you do make the effort, then it becomes sort of something else entirely. Levi Roots is reggae reggae. Yeah, if I was to guess. <laughs> You've got to defend this stuff as well. Like, I don't, like, I'm thinking of Pride here mainly. Like, it's sponsored by Barclays or whatever. And it's because they're just so parasitic. Blackwater. <laughs> Blackwater. <laughs> they're just so... Yeah, like, the, the, the sort of mercenary guys who, like, oh my did, God. like, <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. contracting in Iraq. Is... I saw them. I saw them at the... I was at Pride two years ago. They had a fucking float. <laughs> yeah you you have to it's not just making sure you remain anti-capitalist it's about defending yourself from fucking because it's so hard like 
everything around you <laughs> yeah. is basically mm-hmm. pushing you down this path, you know, and unless you actively resist it, and that is fucking exhausting, you know, you're just like, I just want to do this thing, but you're basically a sale from all sides to monetize just things, celebrate existing. you know, or as you say, this really horrible police and this kind of stuff, you know, that you can't really resist that as well, you know, it's, it, 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 it's fucking difficult, that's why it's not done that often. You know, the stuff that cuts through event is because someone really... Obviously, that woman had such strength of will to get this through. But not everyone has that, you know, neither the time nor the constitution for it, you know? As, as almost as, as almost every time you sort of have to... You have a conversation about sort of politics and culture, it always goes back to the... I guess so, but it's really hard. Doing politics is hard. Doing politics is hard. And appending politics to something fun can make politics more fun, yeah. but it also makes the fun thing more hard. Yeah, it does. But a good place maybe to, to, to start wrapping up as well is just talking about the question of rave culture right now, or rather the complete lack of it, what it might look like when things open back up. I mean, we can even talk about right now and about how it, it's become a public health issue and there's a moral panic about people having raves in Manchester and the South West. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, videos on, on Twitter of police dogs mauling a woman who may not regain control of her leg. Yeah, this is in uh, Somerset. Very, very, very heavy-handed police. I think this was uh, towards the end of the summer or maybe even the autumn. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's a moral panic again, rave culture. No, you know, sick semper, ever thus. Yeah. Um, we, it's, it's, I, I mean, there, because it's, it's, if you look back at a time when sort of, when, whenever it, there's always been a panic around sort of what people are doing when they are partying because that's outside the sort of predictable structures of what's considered to be appropriate and productive so you're always going to find a moral panic about it quite simply because it is the unknown because it is people venturing off into what is socially unknown it's not might not be unknown to them individually but it is a great black box from the perspective of a, a productive society, if you like. And, and venturing into that black box is easily considered to be a, a sort of, rightly or wrongly, quite often wrongly, uh, the act of venturing into that black box is considered to be, you know, one of, of you know, of, of leaving the sort of the, the acceptable productive society, of, of checking yourself out of those rules and potentially exposing yourself and therefore others to sort of corrupting forces that might sort of um, might even turn you against it. And, uh, I, and I'm not saying that this is necessarily the case. I'm saying that when you have, you know, a, a very sort of tightly controlled... I'm almost making like a, a society must be defended, a little, little Foucauldian point. What, when, what, that you must, you must defend against the unknown. And I think that one of the, rad, the radical potentials of rave culture is sort of so bound up in why it is considered to be sort of the source of so many moral panics, which is that it is that unknown. And it, it, and it is considered sort of other and separate. It is at a, a space outside. And that in itself does not make it necessarily sort of revolutionary or even anti-capitalist. It just makes it hard to understand. And when things are hard to understand, they will be the subject of panics. And those panics, when it, especially when, when the stakes are high, uh, the panics become more intense, I think. Can I have another cigarette? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I digressed a bit. We wanted to no, talk I mean, about the, the future. No, but that's 
like, I think that this question of the moral panic is very relevant, I think, because we are definitely seeing a moral panic, when, whether it comes to partying, whether it comes to drugs, whether it comes to sex. We are definitely seeing a moral panic um, similar to what was around in the 80s. And um, oh, sorry, just one more thing. It's got it's got know, tied like, up with the current racialized moral panic about knife crime. Yeah, because whenever I, when I was doing my research, I was looking at literally every single fucking article about raves that have happened during the pandemic that have been policed. There's always some mention of a stabbing, and then always some mention of knife crime, and yeah. that's gotten uh, become a thing that's become mishmashed into it. Well, it's it's because there is this desire of uh, if only they wouldn't do that. If only they wouldn't go uh, go to a rave. If only they wouldn't do carnival. If only this thing that I don't like and that I consider to be unproductive and that I consider to be outside the sort of normal relationships of employee-employer, customer-servant uh, customer, um, or whatever. If only this thing wasn't happening, then all of these scary things wouldn't happen. And the point of like the police and the journalists and stuff is to go in there and be reporters on this strange and different place who can bring back sort of uh, the, the facts to sort of, um, you might say, uh, uh, confirm that in this, uh, in this black box, uh, there are things going on that are threatening. You're right to be scared. Uh, they should be stopped. We should just make it so that you can go to Dalesford Organic on any day of the year and not have to worry about this thing that is not really doesn't really concern you that you can't interact with in a way that you so you feel comfortable with you know it's it's um it's, it always strikes me as as, as sort yeah. of serving that purpose as essentially being weaponized yeah and i think as as we are seeing the heightening contradictions of capitalism come to a head with imminent climate catastrophe and pandemic and recession and all the rest i think that these kind of culture war uh talking points and moral panics end up becoming very convenient ways to also keep a populace occupied about ultimately very irrelevant things and um you know their attention away from the real sources of power and and you know structural injustice you know and 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 deficiencies which have led us to the point where we are right now right it's easy um, to look, sort of like blame those 19 year old kids over there having a rave when actually exactly the government have their hands in your pocket for the past 12 months and they've just been mugging you off you know it's not their fault <laughs> it's not those kids fault you're just yeah. getting angry at something that basically i mean there's obviously all sorts of prejudices and stuff coming into that as well older people in this country despise young people for some reason they like these boomers <laughs> hate their children it's just a, yet another thing to stick to beat people with i'm not I'm not excusing people going out partying. That is dangerous and stuff, but there's loads of layers to this, you know. Um, yeah, it's yeah, not. It's not. Yeah. It's not just about people partying. There's tons of other stuff that's got, yeah. that goes completely unsaid, you know. But it's there, always bubbling under the surface, like. Absolutely, I think this m might be a good time to wrap up as well. We've had a great discussion, lots of tangents, <laughs> but very entertaining tangents nonetheless. Very, very mm -hmm. smoking area. I think, I think I'm ready to go back in. I'm getting <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is where I start, you know, already putting the techno in the background <laughs> of, you know, so, so it sounds like, you know, we're we're at the outside of a, of a club right now. Uh, I have to say that Hitman level in the Bergheim really was, <laughs> that was very, that was, that was, that was hard to play without really getting itchy feet. Uh, no I have to way. say. <laughs> 
I'm gonna I'm gonna play it. I'm gonna play it with yeah. Alice on the TF stream. <laughs> it's, soon. I think you'll like it. It's it's great. <laughs> yeah. Um. I love Burkheim. I think about. I think. I I just think about Burkheim. Yeah. I mean. I only went the one time, but it was, I, I, but it was pretty. I, uh, do you know what? I've yeah, been refused yeah, three times beforehand, and I wanted to fucking hate it because I'm a very petty man. <laughs> All right, but when I went in there and it was just fucking amazing, yeah. I was like, um, yeah. Yeah. Nah, well, I, I would say I want to live here. Yeah, I uh, well, there was one time, one time, dimension. one one time I was there. I actually like had to like acclimatize myself into the idea <laughs> of living because I was like, "All right." There yeah. <laughs> is an outside world. Yeah. And I will have to return to it at some point. And it's heartbreaking. No, not right now. It's heartbreaking. I will heartbreaking need to, to come go to that back there at some point. And and it is I have never been to anywhere else like that where <laughs> yeah. you are there for like a day and a half and you have to be like, "Okay, remember the concept of home." <laughs> <laughs> you know, okay, let's remember how to get from here to there. Uh, this is going to be more than just going up the stairs to see if those people you met are still in Panorama Bar. This is going to be more of an undertaking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before you go as well, either of you, do you want to say any plugs or any social media or anything like that before we wrap up? I don't really have anything to plug. I just My Twitter account is at Steph Got Booted for the, for the moment. Let's see how long I last. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I might be respawning. Next one, Steph booted yeah. yet again. Uh, I, yeah, that, it's, it's, it's going to be Steph got rebooted and then re-rebooted. Exactly. Until you yeah. run out of Just characters. Just so people will know it's me. You know? Um, yeah. But yeah, anyway, I've, I've had a great time. It's been a great conversation. So I'll just say thanks to both of you for having me on. Yes, and, and and I too have had a lovely time and also would like to issue a, a, a hearty thank you uh, for having me on to your fine show. I'd like to promote The Bottleman, a podcast uh, that I am doing about Canadian politics uh, with uh, Dan Beckner, uh, formerly of uh, uh, Wolf Parade, of Operators, of uh, various uh, a Fortune Kit, of other various fun musical projects. He and I explore uh, various different kinds of, um, uh, basically, so far it's just been like Canadian myth busting, where it's for everyone thinks that Canada is this sort of wonderful, like, uh, quite like sort of functional state, and you start looking at it just a little bit, and you're like, oh, it's it's just the U.S. with a better propaganda department. Thank you both yeah, so much for coming. You. It's been really, really great. Uh, I've had a really fun time, and uh, I'm gonna apologize as well both to Nikita for completely kind of taking over this discussion uh, and doing kind of my thing. I <laughs> do apologize about that. And to all the listeners who, were expe- who are hoping you know to hear more I, of Nikita. I had fun. So. That's, that's, all that's the least that we can hope, right? Well, I'm, I'm going tr- to try and do, or get, like organize a sex work episode soon. So that'll be just me fucking ranting Um, for two hours. No, but um, I'm I'm Arjun. I'm at Arjanistan on Twitter. Oh yeah, I'm Nikita. I'm Jeremy Horbin, but with a zero instead of an O. And also a huge shout out to the absolute boy Cardio for providing the music every week so far. You can check out SoundCloud at soundcloud.com forward slash young cardio. And we are left over. We have a Patreon, patreon.com forward slash leftover pod all help is massively appreciated and obviously a massive thank you to everyone who has already signed up you know we are hoping to make this more of a full-time thing into the future and every little bit helps obviously in order to help us to get to that point and uh once again a huge thanks to everyone for listening in this week 
We'll catch you guys next week. Cheers. Okay, see ya. Later. Later.